I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of the uh, better written books of the season is the biography from Dustin Gaylor, Beryl, The Making of a Disability Activist. It follows the life and times of Beryl Potter, a British-born working-class mother who became a noted activist for access and inclusion in Canada. The book charts Potter's early life in England. It was bleak. We follow her through the Second World War as she gets married and starts a family. We see her move to Canada and how her family life is upended with a slip and fall at work. It's uh, seen at first as harmless, but it results in six years of severe pain. She then loses her leg, and after that another leg, and an arm. Her financial security is lost, not to mention her home and husband. Her life has changed dramatically as she contends with over 100 surgeries and opioid addiction and suicide attempts. We see her journey as she becomes a public figure, contributing to disability awareness in the 1970s and 1980s. Dustin Gaylor joins me now, and I'll get him to tell us about how he came to write this book and why the life of Beryl Potter is an important one to know about. What he's crafted is an eminently readable, engaging book that raises awareness in its own way as he frames Potter's life amid changing societies in Canada and Britain, as well as demonstrates how impactful her life was and how much uh, there still needs to be done to achieve disability justice. Dustin Gaylor is a professional historian with a Ph.D. in history from the University of Toronto. He wrote the first book-length history of the disability rights movement, Working Towards Equity. Visit myhistorian.ca for more information. This new book is published by Between the Lines. We taped this interview two and a half weeks ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Dustin Gaylor. Dr. Gaylor, good morning. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, It's so effective when you uh, start the book out with um, the life of uh, Beryl Potter. uh, You show us... um, how bleak her upbringing was in Liverpool. Um, because, uh, because I started the book and I was thinking, uh, why, why do we need to know all of this stuff? Mm-hmm. And then you do realize that, that, that um, people are shaped uh, by people that they don't know, and in this case, in Beryl's case, by her birth parents. Mm-hmm. And you see just how different her life would have been had she stayed there or, and how different it was, in, in fact, that she left that place. Right. Uh, what, what was it like to, to, to uh, piece her life together at, at that point and, and, and what it was like for her in Liverpool and in that upbringing? Because as I said a moment ago, it's quite bleak, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So she was born in Liverpool in the 20s, but, uh, but her, her birth father died at a young age and she lost some um, twin half-sisters. Um, there was a lot of multiple close family members she, she she lost, as well as living through some very desperate times. Um, there's a whole chapter dedicated to them just moving from place to place, which would have left her... I, what I was trying to do with these early chapters is trying to kind of roll back the clock to unravel who this woman was as an adult woman by searching for some childhood experiences. Because I wasn't able to interview her directly, mm-hmm. so I had to get a lot through her family members. Um, and trying to find, like, what would have caused her to be like this or react this way. And you can find a lot of those answers in child, childhood, except, you know, we also don't want to project <laughs> our own uh, psychological, you know, conclusions onto, onto people. 
Yeah, I mean, but, uh, she's someone who was born, uh, I guess, next year, 2024, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so it, it, it's, a, it's a different way of life altogether, whether, whether yeah. you're from England or, or you're in Canada in the 20th century, right? Yes, and her formative experiences are relevant to her later activism. Because mm. um, what I explained later on, which we can get into, is, is she was really a generation older than many of the activists that she uh, was working alongside. And many of her formative experiences had uh, positive um, interactions with service agencies, which a lot of disability rights activists were fighting against, which we can also get into. Yeah. So her, her formative experiences were really part of part and parcel of who she was as a person and also uh, her effectiveness as an active activist. The marvelous thing in your book, and there are a lot of marvelous things in your book, but but the, the one uh, thing that I, I remember after uh, having finished it and, and thinking about it now as we're talking is this change in her personality um, mm-hmm. and the way she comports herself. And, and you know, th- that's tied in, obviously, into, to what's happened to her physically, but then, you know, her activism, obviously. But but what were you able to, to uh, say, uh, figure out as to her personality in those early years, even uh, when she's first married, b- before the accidents, um, she's a very different person than, than, than I guess the the public knew her as in the in the seventies and eighties, right? Yeah. So um, her family reported to me that that prior to her accident, she was a very shy and introverted person, and uh, and I wanted to investigate like if that was true and, and where that may have come from. So mm-hmm. that's where I, I dug deeper into what it must have felt like as a child, you know, moving, I think it was up to 13 times over the course of nine years through the Depression. Just They were called moonlight flips. They would leave, you know, in the dead of night, just everyone pack your bags, they have to leave to escape the landlord, like again and again and again. Things like that, what effect that might have on childhood development. Um, and then also, you know, the bombing rate uh, during the Second World War. Liverpool was one of the most heavily bombed areas um, outside of London. Uh-huh. And uh, Ma- Malcolm Gladwell wrote about the effect of near and and uh, long range misses. Well, I, I could zoom with, you know, research technology. I can zoom in and see where Beryl lived and how many near misses she had and the, what cocktail of emotions that might have formed in her teenage brain so by doing this we can see like she she grew up and apparently was a very shy introverted woman wouldn't even go into a store without accompaniment yeah and uh somehow the the process of going through what she went through in hospital um ignited this this long-standing repression that she had uh, and she just emerged as a completely different person after that and um, the draw to Canada, I guess she had met her husband, Victor, uh, in Liverpool. Is that right? Yes, yes. So they met after the war. I see. Uh, we don't have the exact details, but yeah. And, and so um, how long after their marriage did they, they end up in Canada? Uh, so they tried to stay in Liverpool for about 10 years. And um, uh, I, there's other historians and experts who know more about this than I do, but the post-war economy and in all of England, yeah. uh, let alone Liverpool, with its destroyed port, was just devastating. So very difficult to find a job. And, and her husband, Victor, already had experience as a merchant marine, 
which I go into in the book, where he traveled, you know, quite widely and had a cousin living in Toronto. And as with many immigration stories, when there's a family link, um, then, you know, it leads to chain migration, and that, that was part of their story. And it was easy for them as, as British subjects, I guess, to, 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 to yeah. make it to Canada, right? Yes, there were favorable immigration policies. So, uh, And even the, um, um, uh, sort of loan schemes to uh, cover the cost of travel for British subjects yeah. to Canada and, and other Commonwealth countries. So 0% loans, and you can just pay it back whenever you can pay it back. Um, so, yeah, made, they made it very favorable, favorable for uh, British subjects to come to Canada. And, and many did, many thousands came during that time seeking new opportunities. Yeah, you, you remind me of, of, of a, a scene in the book where um, I can't even remember now who it was that went to, to, to England um, from Canada um, trying to lure immigrants over and and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Churchill I think was was uh, annoyed by that yeah pre- I think it was premier drew ah, uh, of Ontario. Ontario premier yeah, yeah looks like a salesman trying to encourage immigrants to Canada because Canada's economy was booming at that time right yeah. Um, so yeah we needed the workers so yeah uh, many skilled workers came over at that time for sure the, the marriage to Victor—that—that's that, tough to read in the book. Um, um, mm-hmm. His drinking, the, the, the violence that results as, uh, because of that. Um, and, and to skip forward just a second in, in the in the um, story here, um, at the end, um, you write that she sort of she she forgave him, even taking on some of the blame as to what happened to him. Uh, do you think it's a? This is back to what you mentioned a moment ago about a generational thing. That this is something that that uh, perhaps someone from of her vintage say would do, as opposed to anyone born after her. Yeah, because, I mean, both her and Victor were part of the the greatest generation. Uh-huh. Um, so that's born after the First World War, um, and uh, it, it's the, the hardships they all lived through. Obviously, they. Many weren't able to cope with that, but there was this general, I think it was also a British thing, this kind of keep calm and carry on attitude mm, right. um, that many people use to get through hardship. Um, and with Victor, I think there was also uh, a certain um, cultural and, and feminist interpretation of this as well, <laughs> like Beryl taking on her husband's problems as her own. I mean, she took, you know, as a as a woman of her time, or at least aspirationally of her time, um, she felt she could fix her husband. She, you know, there wasn't the language for PTSD, but he obviously had very uh, traumatic experiences during his uh, wartime um, service. And so Beryl just thought she could fix all that, and we don't break up the family to save the kids. And she really internalized a lot of the messages of her time trying to fit herself into this mold, I believe, yeah. uh, of what a, a true like mother and, and housewife would be and think like. Um, and just all of that got thrown at the window, of course, after her accident. Yeah. It, it's fascinating how you you um, interpret a lot of these things um, through the lens of feminism. Um, you mentioned um, that aspect of, of the relationship between Victor and Beryl. But, but you also look at the way she comported herself in her activism, thinking about that and, and you know, how that upset a lot of people, and yet um, 
her activism also changes, doesn't it, over time? It does. Yeah, yes. you write candidly about about that, and and um, you know how she's viewed, especially you know at one at some points as a militant. Um, what is it like to 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 to, to uh, sort of look at critically the work that she's in? Because this is obviously a life that that's worth thinking about. I mean, this is a great activist in the, in this country's history, and yet at the same time, um, not a perfect one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I, from the beginning, so I, as a historian, um, I was more used to writing sort of academic stories with very clear arguments and citations and this and that. So unfortunately, I had to unlearn a lot of academic writing habits uh-huh. uh, for biography. But I I'd started a personal history practice where I, I pra- practiced corporate and uh, biography projects and personal history projects. So this sort of introduced me to the uh, role of the biographer. And so in, in committing to Beryl's story at the outset, I didn't even really know what I was committing to. I thought maybe it'd be like an article. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did want to ensure that I wasn't writing one of these sort of stereotype-reinforcing, uh, inspirational tale of triumph over adversity, you know, yeah. beating the odds type story. But mm-hmm. that often populates bookshelves about disability, I think, far too much. I didn't want to contribute to that, uh, and yet you don't know what kind of story you're jumping into. Fortunately, with Beryl, uh, the, the deeper I dug into her story, the more complex of a person she became. And I think it was very important just to show all of those warts in order to get away from that sort of stereotype-reinforcing genre. So that, that was a deliberate choice on my part um, to ensure that you know I was showing her accurately and not in a way that made her disability the center of her identity. Yeah, it's a fascinating way to, to, to look at her life because, you, you know, there are obviously areas where she did marvelous work, but the way she went about it or <laughs> uh, there are aspects of her private life that, that, that one can't reconcile with, you know, um, her, her, uh, her public life even. Yeah, she couldn't, she couldn't navigate that um, personal versus... Uh, public life. She just, she let her activism take over her life completely. So the story is a bit of a, of a warning um, yeah. that that can happen in activism. Um, but she just felt so committed to her cause that she even let it compromise her health and, and everything else and be everything for the cause. Um, that be, that became her mission in life. So for those who are driven by a mission, you know, that there are consequences sacrifices and I do go into that yeah family for sure I mean this is something the the relationship with family members um, uh, the relationship with her son uh, David is just fascinating um, to think about we'll talk about that in just a sec Um, money uh, seems to be quite an issue for her Um, Mm. and in terms of, of after the accident um, she did get a pension, but obviously that doesn't cover, I guess, her living expenses, does it? Not entirely, yeah. So she, um, the, the experience of disability, especially in Canada, is often governed by uh, your, your type of disability and how you acquired it. So in Barrow's case, she uh, sustained her injury at work, and so she was technically an injured worker, mm-hmm. and many of her expenses were paid through the Workers' Compensation Board. But someone could sustain the exact same injury in a car or on the street 
or someplace else and have a completely different experience because uh, there isn't a system in place to uh, support their needs. So in many ways, she actually was was well supported by the Workers' Compensation Board, but even with her pension, it was well below poverty uh, level rates. So she, she had to get creative. So her uh, son, Dennis, who had an intellectual disability and, and was her, sort of her um, full-time assistant caregiver, she would often negotiate a caregiver salary or an attendance salary for him. When she joined a committee. She would negotiate, you know, an attendance allowance and just to make sure that they had the income they needed to support themselves. Every organization she started was on funding for grants that she wrote and submitted, and that was her income if she got it. And if she didn't get it, she didn't have any income. So uh, there was a price of advocacy that was very high, and, and as, as one activist panned down, Pat Danforth and um, Victoria mentioned, uh, this wasn't like a career choice. Um, these people were forced into advocacy by just the nature of living. You know, trying to advocate for themselves every day be- becomes sort of a career after a period of time. And so that's what lends to, you know, the, the formal uh, uh, work of activism. And so that was really part of Farrell's story as well. Yeah, I mentioned, I mentioned a moment ago, uh, referring to Dennis as David. Um, this yes, is her no, son, Dennis. her son David. Um, and it, it's such a fascinating relationship because um, it works for a while, doesn't it? I mean, they're, they're, they're both dependent on one another and they're both able to coexist. But then um, naturally over time, uh, this isn't healthy for either of them, is it? Yeah, that's the nature, and that's, you know, I, I can speak to that as a caregiver, uh-huh. that, you know, caregiving relationships um, don't always look healthy, especially to outsiders, <laughs> and that's often because there's, you know, families are just trying to invent a support system for themselves. Um, we just don't live in a society that, you know, has those types of services and supports uh, readily accessible to everyone. Um, so in their case, um, uh, Beryl would not have been able to be the activist that she was or the, you know, childhood educator or the public speaker or the, all the things, you know, that she committed to without her son Dennis because she just wouldn't have been able to afford getting around uh-huh. without his constant driving her, the physical support, because, um, you know, she was traveling a lot at a time when, you know, ramps just, weren't that common, curb cuts, all sorts of things. And unfortunately, Dennis just completely ruined his body, uh, you know, lifting her chair over his knee, and you know, he, he uh, sort of had his own addiction issues with uh-huh. painkillers. Yeah, so those relationships can look really messy from the outside. But, you know, ultimately, uh, was it healthy? Was it not? It's hard to say. and <laughs> be yeah. the reader, too. That. Yeah, that's, that's up to us to decide that. Yeah, um, back to money for just a second. Um, not that I want to dwell on on that, but w- would someone who found themselves in uh, the same situation today um, would they be um, would they be in the same sort of a boat financially? I mean, w- would they be able to say uh, rise above the poverty line? In terms of supports from the government today, and I guess because you, you're in Ontario, I'm in British Columbia. The things are a little bit different, I guess, province to province. But, and, but, and that's yeah, that's part of the answer is that it's, mm. it's actually there's no clear answer to that because each province has its own system for injured workers. Um, but you know, if 
if you want to know if injured workers are getting paid enough, and probably the answer is no, yeah. <laughs> um, I would suggest that people look to their uh, provincial um, or federal um, injured workers alliance. Um, Steve Mantis, in particular, out in Thunder Bay, who uh-huh. does a lot of work promoting um, what the needs are for injured workers. And I know that it's likely inadequate, the kind of benefits they get, and they're often advocating for that. And that's, that's true of all disability policy, frankly. If you just listen to people with disabilities in their organizations, you can often find the answers you need to, to policy problems that affect them. Yeah. Um, the, the accidents themselves, as you, as you write them in the book, I mean, if, if, if someone were to write a, a screenplay um, with everything that happened to Beryl physically mm-hmm. and, then, and then the consequences emotionally and, and, and psychologically, um, some people wouldn't believe everything that she's gone through. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to believe, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, just the, the toll physically on her and, and how that all happened, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, just like six years of just constant. I think she estimated over 100 surgeries altogether. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah, I, I try to examine or you know, even challenge the reader to consider what that must do to your mind. Uh, and I think that's part to answer your earlier question about how she emerged as this new person. I think you would emerge from anything like that uh, as a new person. You couldn't be the same person again. It's very transformative. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wrote down in my, my list here, and I think it's a, um, you know, I think you've answered this already. I mean, this is an important life that we should know about, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, and 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 it's not a question of why. It's a question of why haven't we, I guess, heard enough about her? Yeah, I I firmly believe that we need to know more disability activists and how they've shaped our history. Because I think for most people, their name recognition of of an important disabled Canadian sort of begins and ends with Terry Fox Mm -hmm. (laughs) or Rick Hansen or maybe Michael J. Fox. You know, Beryl's story is just one of many, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, who've been forced to advocate for themselves in a system that devalues them. And through that advocacy, they've literally changed our our built environment, our physical culture, the way we communicate. Um, you know, why don't we know more names? <laughs> you know, like Jim Dirksen, yeah. Andrew Carpenter, David Lepofsky, Pat Danforth. You know, these, these people have helped change our history. And I think I'm hoping by, you know, creating the story and putting it out in the world, it's helps to contribute to more of an appetite for stories like that and not the sort of just inspirational, stereotype-reinforcing stories we were talking about earlier. Yeah, you know, I was just thinking about, um, you know, because she's quite active in the 70s and the 80s and um, how things have changed. I mean, um, you you, you just look at where one lives and... and, um, the street where one lives, and and you know there's that that the the dip in the uh, sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Um, those things weren't around before the 70s, were they? No, yeah. Prior to the 1970s, there was really no such thing as disability rights. I, I mean, it wasn't until um, it was 1975 that the uh, UN Declaration on the Rights of Disabled Persons was passed. Um, so that's, it wasn't really until then that you had, you know, municipalities looking at public projects like, you know, curb cuts. But even from the very beginning, 
policymakers would make, you know, improvements and changes like that without consulting the disability community. So curb cuts, for example, created a new problem for the blind who had been trained how to walk down sidewalks by, you know, knowing where the edge of the curb is. And so they started leading a bunch of people into traffic by this new accessibility improvement it wasn't until they figured out, oh, you have to put rumble strips down. And that's just one example of the many ways that policies are developed and implemented without consultation. Um, and that has been from the very beginning. I mean, paratransit services is another example. That's something Barrel fought from the very beginning in the 1970s um, in Toronto when Wheeltrans was, was uh, introduced with, you know, late in the pickups. It just makes it impossible for people to hold a job or uh, have social appointments or, you know, just generally participate in the community. So a lot of these things haven't changed or gone away, but certainly when she was starting, they're just, it was like the Wild West yeah, <laughs> in yeah. terms of race. Yeah, I was looking at some old photos of, of Vancouver streets in the sort, and I, I, I saw some of the old buses that I grew up with in the 80s and the, and the, the mid-90s. And I got nostalgic yeah. for some of them, and then I realized um, those were not accessible to people who were in wheelchairs. No. Um, and um, how fortunate, well, I'm speaking, you know, in, in a Vancouver context, that all, all the buses are like that now. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm sure that's the same with, with, with the TTC in, in Toronto. Um, elevators at, at uh, train stations and the sort. I mean, th these things are, are um, I guess these are things that we take for granted now, but um, we can see why someone like Beryl Potter would, would advocate for these things and, and, and quite vocally, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, like, so she was four, uh, 40 years old when she sustained her accident. Mm -hmm. And so she was sort of like a middle-aged woman ex experiencing the world as if for the first time. I mean, I, you know, again, as a caregiver, I, I know a thing or two about, you know, having to, not thinking about disability until it affects you personally. I actually sort of liken it to like the matrix and that, it, you know, there are barriers all around us, but it's only when you're attuned to them that you can actually perceive them. And so for Beryl, I think it was that essential juxtaposition. You know, she went about the world in a certain way and and now she's dropped back into the world and she's just surrounded by barriers and, and and thinking really people have been tolerating this like forever why are we doing this but you know that's what led her to you know start start her rec group and start advocating for people on and on and on from there that that essential juxtaposition of not not realizing that the world really was like this for an entire group of people you mentioned uh, being a caregiver. Um, th that's something that, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, we're about the same age, uh, you and I, Dustin. Um, okay. the, the, uh, a lot of people, our vintage, are now having to contend with. I mean, it was, it was sort of our parents' generation, if you will, that, that uh, went into caregiving, you know, the great majority of them. That was their experience, right? Or it is their experience, yeah. I should say. Um do you think, as a caregiver, we're considering the effects of of what that work entails? Because I, I obviously don't think um, we are. Um, no, no, I don't think that we are. And actually, but it, it is good to to see more work being done on trying to raise awareness around that. Mm -hmm. uh, one person I really admire is Donna Thompson, 
Uh, she's the author of Four Walls and My Freedom, and there's a, a new, like, caregiving sort of think tank. I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, but I'm glad that they're raising awareness of it because, yes, this, this is, you know, as Daryl is doing in her day for her son. You know, caregiving is uh, an essential service. We certainly saw that during the pandemic mm. when an entire, you know, system was pushed to the brink and it was only, you know, quietly the work of family and paid caregivers, like, preventing it from collapse. But that has, that's been an issue from the very beginning and it hasn't gone away either, for sure. And are you in in a in a personal uh, uh, <laughs> in me prying personally here? Are you able to find the support that you need so that that uh, you as a carer get the care that you need? Say, yeah. So, like, I care for my sister um, who has a traumatic brain injury, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, we couldn't have any um, PSWs come to the house because you know they're hopping from house to house, right. to nursing home to yeah. house. Um, and so often, yeah, it, like throughout most history, at least in Canada, perhaps not in Scandinavian countries, but everywhere else, um, it, it's always been pushed onto the family to find the, you know, prop up the many failings of the healthcare and social support system. Um, and, and that's just a legacy that continues to stay in new form, unfortunately. I know that's sort of a pessimistic look at it, but, um, uh, it, it is the reality that many people are living, for sure. Yeah. I, I guess we, we need to talk about it more, don't we, as a society? Yeah, especially since, you know, that was it really was revealed uh, during the pandemic, what it's like. Um, if you have many adults living in nursing homes that do not need to be there. Um, there's actually a great shout-out to another podcast, Invisible Institutions, by Megan Linton. Mm-hmm. Um, she explores the many ways in which institutionalization continues for people with disabilities. Uh, you know, we've closed the last residential hospital, uh, Heronia, in 2010, but uh, it, it continues in many different ways, and the pandemic did highlight that. So I, I do hope the conversation continues, for sure. Uh, to the book for just a sec, there's a the scene where um, Beryl Potter uh, is in the House of Commons, um, it's just a terrific scene, and you write it like a movie. Um, oh. And people listening to this should pick up the book for that. I mean, again, it's one of those things, if you came up with it yourself, I don't think people would believe you that that would happen, would it? <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty remarkable story. I actually thought the story that uh, just prior to that, that Judy Rebick tells of, of the time she, like, maybe assaulted the prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, I didn't... <laughs> I don't know if you wanted to, me to tell me that now or have people read it. Yeah, no, I think, I, I think we, we should te- tease people just, just because these are these are scenes that um, I, I guess they say a lot about um, why people um, found her captivating mm-hmm. and, and why, why some of her opponents probably found her um, less so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and it was it goes back to that image you were talking about earlier. She 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 still maintained this sort of grandmotherly, almost like Mrs. Doubtfire image because mm. she had the English accent. Um actually Alex Hamilton Brown, who directed the first documentary about her, uh, discussed how she had this sort of old world English charm that Canadians liked like sort of warm to, yeah. which I guess maybe was true of a certain era. <laughs> And, you know, she had the pearls and the hair done and in the queenly fashion. 
um, and yet she she could use that image and on a dime turn into this fiery activist. And that's why I think the book's cover of a bunch of microphones thrust in her face, which was actually taken at one of major protests that she uh, had organized, that's so apt because that's how most Canadians knew her at the time. Like from the 1970s to the 90s, mm-hmm. Vera was regularly in newsprint and television headlines. And so a lot of Canadians of a certain generation would definitely remember her, um, and uh, but maybe didn't know her whole story up to this point. And you saw her as a kid. Uh, she, she visited your school. Is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I uh, first encountered Beryl in the course of my graduate research um, uh, that became my first book, Working Towards Equity, about the history of the disability rights movement. And so I was in the archives one day, and I turned over this picture of Beryl and Mr. Grizzly, the aware bear, which was her sort of answer to Mr. Dress Up and Mr. Rogers. Um, They're sort, sort of, of like the characters that they, they brought, yeah, brought with them, like right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so Mr. Grizzly was this life-size animatronic bear with amputated limbs, used a wheelchair, and spoke, all of it operated by her son Dennis off in a corner. And when I saw this picture, I was like, oh, my God, I have met this woman as an either five- or six-year-old. I remember her visiting our school. And uh, just being so mesmerized by her. But, of course, it wasn't until much later that I dug into her story and realized, um, wow, what, what an inspirational and, and important story that uh, we, need to, we need to share. And, and that filled her, her, her calendar, didn't it? Appearances like that at school, speeches to, to clubs and the sort and organizations. I mean, that's how a lot of people got to know her, right? Yeah, so like she, there was this sort of activist and lobbyist side of her, um, but especially as time wore on, she dedicated more and more of her time to the education of children. Um, she firmly believed that that children were our future doctors and architects and policymakers and uh, business leaders, and so she felt that if she could imprint uh, a positive representation of disability onto children that that would kind of filter into their adult lives and eventually change the way we do things. It was obviously a very long-term project, something that would outlive her. Yeah. Um, but that, that's, that's, that was the kind of thinking that she had. That's why she focused on more of the cultural thought messaging of uh, disability awareness, uh, just to nurture empathy instead of fear and ignorance that she saw in many of the people she interacted with on a daily basis. And her family... Um, I, I, her, her two sons, unfortunately, are, 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 uh, have died. Um, her, her daughter, um, whose name I forgot already, is it Diane? Diane, yeah. Yeah. Um, her family, her and her family, they've been quite supportive in, in, of the book and encouraged you. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, this book couldn't be what it is without the Judah family, which is um, Diane is Beryl's daughter mm-hmm. and her husband George and Michelle and Justin, um, they, uh, they were so candid and open and um, just allowed me to sort of access Beryl. Again, like I'd done biographies before, sort of paid biographies, mm-hmm. but this is my first major biography, like trade book, and so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. But, you know, them being so open, I was able to sort of access Beryl in a way sort of virtually through their memories. Uh, and really paint the sort of fulsome portrait um, that it is because of them. 
So yeah, I, I definitely a shout out to them <laughs> for sure. And uh, we were talking just before we started about uh, how, how much I enjoyed the the uh, the great detail that you uh, provide in the book, which which makes it, you know just a fascinating read altogether. Um, w- was the research for for this book fun for you? Oh yes, that's actually the whole reason I I do this just to fill my day, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, I uh, as an academic uh, historian. I was always um, super interested by the process of like researching and writing and pulling a project together, and that really long like just like it takes years. It took five years to put together from start to finish, um, and, and I'd love to see it evolve over time. And, and you know, just seeing a per, like a person's character get honed. I, I just I just love that. I I, uh, I enjoyed teaching, but I was more of a <laughs> I like to disappear into the archives and chase down clues. And, and try to find something new. I mean, I already have a, a another finished manuscript that's been going out to pitch next January, and I just love you know. Do I could do this all day long, you know, until I'm in my nineties, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, 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 I picked up the book last night and, and was flipping through, and I, I remember uh, I was I ended up reading something from the beginning of the book where um, you talk about where she grew up, and and you you mentioned you know what was playing at the cinema. Um, what might have been, you know, what might have been playing that week, even, and I found that mm-hmm. fascinating because that gives us a, a sort of uh, a cultural, um, you know, so sort of uh, background that 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 we need to know about what people were actually doing in those times. Say, yeah, there I'm I'm channeling my like my mentor, <laughs> although I've never met her, Laura Hellenbrand, uh-huh. um, who wrote Unbroken, um, of course, and Sea Biscuit, and yeah. I'm just such a fan of her writing. Just so, also Stacey Schiff, um, Cleopatra, The Witches. Yeah. Uh, I just love both of their sort of narrative writing with just m- meticulous research. And thankfully, you know, that is the skill that my um, professional training has taught me is excellent, excellent research. Like uncompromising because I, I know I have to stand by everything that I uh, write down. Um, but it was the, the sort of creative nonfiction writing where I needed to sort of draw from these more kind of giants in in the in this genre. Yeah, you, you mentioned this manuscript that, that you're you're about to pitch. I I don't want to pry in terms of, of what oh, the subject might be, but um, this is something that you, that you, you'll continue to do. I guess or write biographies like this. Is that right? Yeah, or stories. So, like, you know, as a as a caregiver and an ally of the disability rights movement, I do feel like it's kind of within my wheelhouse to find and share stories like this. So, the next uh, story is similar. It's, it's about the uh, uh, the death of a developmentally disabled man uh, in 2012, named Guy Mitchell, um, who uh, fell into effectively was a well in the virtual group home that he was living in at the time uh, and died. There was an inquest into his death in the aftermath. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of explore his story through the lens of the inquest and sort of like a courtroom drama type story as well as uh, kind of flashing back to what actually happened uh, as well as different versions because there's many different layers um, of uh, of blame, of guilt, of responsibility, that need to be explored and kind of dissected for um, the public to review because we, we need to be thinking and talking about these types of stories. And 
that I guess for now that's maybe my mission <laughs> in life. Well, long may it continue, because this the, this book is, a, is is, a, is a, such an enjoyable read. Um, congratulations and and continued good luck with it. I so appreciate your time today, uh, Dustin. All the best. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The website for more is at myhistorian.ca. The book is called Barrel, The Making of a Disability Activist. It's published by Between the Lines. Its author, Dustin Gaylor, joined me on the line from Hamilton, Ontario, in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plato.